You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. Brilliant. I will give you another second to flick to that. So it is Mark chapter 11. Uh, starting at verse 27, and that's page 1016 in the Church Bibles. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people for everyone held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At the time, at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and they killed, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, and others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is their heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you heard the passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous to our eyes. Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Thanks so much, uh, Clint and Hannah. Keep that uh, open in front of you. Uh, And we're going to to look at that in more detail. Authority is not a popular concept right now, is it? And our antipathy to authority, it seems to be pretty hardwired into us, doesn't it? Uh, Whether it's the perpetual cry of, Mummy, why? Why do I have to do that from the toddler? Or, Or the way we respond when we get that parking ticket and say, That's not fair, I was only parked there 10 minutes. How do I get a ticket for 10 minutes? Whatever... The reason, we don't very much like authority. Lord Acton famously said that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. 
And we use that sentiment to justify our general scepticism towards authority. It's why the newspapers contain countless pages dishing the dirt on our politicians. It's why parents are encouraged to, to enter into negotiations with their children rather than simply disciplining them for bad behaviour. Authority is passé, unpopular, outdated. Now, there are good historical, cultural and social reasons for that. We live in a highly developed liberal democracy. Freedom is prized. We're free to to say what we like, to believe what we like, to, to behave in the way we like within generous boundaries. And we appreciate that, don't we? I mean, those freedoms were bought with the blood of our grandparents and great-grandparents. And we've seen how badly authorities can act, haven't we? Whether it be the schools and the churches that turned a blind eye to child abuse. Whether it be foreign governments who are systematically oppressing their people and seeing the killing of civilians as being collateral damage we know that very often authority is abused. But listen, we need to be careful because not all authority is bad and indeed much authority is both good and necessary. What's more, our general scepticism towards authority, it isn't just a product of our enlightened Western thinking, No, there is something much darker, something much more sinister that lies beneath. A desire for self-rule, to be captain of our souls, to set the rules in life. And the Bible calls that sin. And it's a real problem. Because the true authority, the ultimate authority, has stepped into our world 2,000 years ago. And that is who we meet as we turn to the pages of Mark's Gospel that we just had read. Let's get our bearings here. Last week, Matt took us through the first part of chapter 11. And there we saw that the king had arrived. Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a colt for Old Testament prophecy. And all the people, they, they see him, they greet him, they hail him as king, and they chant from a messianic psalm, Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus begins his coronation tour of Jerusalem, and the first place he goes to is the temple. That's exactly the place you'd expect God's chosen king to go, the place of God's presence. But as we saw last week, Jesus found it in a complete mess. The religious leaders there, they've been thieving God's glory. They've been filling up the temple with clutter, keeping people from coming into the presence of God. And so Jesus is furious. He is the rightful king, not just of the temple, but of the whole world. He has authority, and so he acts on it. Which brings us to the passage we're looking at today. 
And we're going to see three things about Jesus' authority today. First up, it is an authority you cannot hide from. Jesus is met in verse 27 of chapter 11 by the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now, these were the religious movers and shakers in Jerusalem. Together, they made up the Jewish ruling council, the the Sanhedrin. And they'd seen what Jesus was doing, and, and they'd heard what Jesus had been saying. And so they cry out, verse 28, just, who do you think you are? We are the leaders around here. We've been appointed by King Herod. We're in the priestly line. Now, what gives you the right to come in here, create havoc, and tell us what to do? Who gave you authority? Now, look at Jesus' response. It's down there in verse 30. And it's really interesting. Because Jesus doesn't appear to answer the question. Instead, he fires back a question. He says, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? You tell me. Now, what do you think Jesus was doing here? Was he just being a bit evasive? You know, like the politician on the Sunday program being asked difficult questions in the interview and trying to deflect them away? Is that what Jesus was doing? Well, no, I don't think that's what's going on here. In fact, I think what Jesus is doing is he's being really clever. Because just think, just think about what the answer to these two questions is. The answer's the same, isn't it? I mean, where does Jesus' authority come from, according to Mark's gospel? From God, doesn't it? That's what we've seen as we've worked through Mark's gospel. Jesus shows that he has authority over sickness, over demons, over nature. He has authority to forgive sin. He even has authority to raise the dead. Who has authority like that? Only God. And where did John the Baptist's authority come from? Well, he was miraculously born to an infertile woman. Luke's gospel tells us that he was filled with the Spirit from the very moment of birth. He was the last of the prophets. Where's his authority from? From God. And did you notice how Jesus focuses in particular on John's baptism in verse 29? That's a bit odd, isn't it? Why not focus on his preaching or you know, what he wore? Why his baptism? Well, think back, if you can, to to Mark chapter 1. Jesus comes forward and he is baptised by John. And what happens? A voice comes from heaven. God himself speaking direct to Jesus and he says, You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Do you see? Do you see what's going on here? If the religious leaders would answer Jesus' question to them, the authority of John's baptism, they would have an answer to their question to him. Simple. Absolutely simple. But it is an answer they do not want to hear, not now, not ever. 
And so they say, verse 33, we don't know. Can I speak to you if you're here this afternoon and you're not yet a Christian? Do you realize that this passage we're looking at, it it asks you a question today. It's the same question that Jesus impliedly asks his hearers, the religious leaders. Where do you think Jesus is from? Maybe you like the answer that they gave. I mean, it seems very open-minded, doesn't it? It seems very, very humble. It's the the agnostic response. Well, well, I don't know. I'm open-minded. But do you see the problem here? The religious leaders, they did know where Jesus had come from. They had an answer to their question. The problem was that they didn't like the answer. Can I respectfully suggest that maybe the same is true for you today? Perhaps you're remaining in a state of suspended judgment on Jesus. Not because you don't know who he is. It's, but because you don't like the implications of it. If so, then, then you're not really undecided today. You're rejecting him. Ultimately, it is impossible to sit on the fence with Jesus. We cannot simply say, I don't know. The author C.S. Lewis put it really well in his book, God in the Dock. He wrote, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Jesus is an authority you cannot hide from. You either dismiss him as a fraud or you worship him as Lord. Those are the only two choices we have. You know, these verses here in Mark chapter 11, they're not primarily aimed at unbelievers. No, they are a laser-guided missile aimed at religious types. Which means, if you're a regular here at City Church, these verses are designed to go right to your heart. Look, There are two ways you can hide from an authority. One is to deny the existence of the authority. That's what you're doing if you say you don't believe in Jesus, if you say you're an atheist. But there is another way to hide from authority, and that is by claiming that you are the one who mediates God's authority, claiming that you are the one who dictates what God does and says. And that's exactly what the religious leaders in Jerusalem were doing. You know, there are actually two ways of doing that. Uh, Try these on for size. See if they fit something that you are doing or have done. The first way to claim to mediate God is to say things like, I like to think of God as dot. I like to think of God as loving, but I don't like all that talk about judgment. 
I like to think that what Jesus says about doing good to the poor is great, but I really don't like all that regressive stuff about sexual morality. That is one way to claim to be the one who mediates God's authority. But there's another way, and I suspect the other way is much more prevalent here at City Church. It's thinking that God owes you. I've been faithful. I haven't dated that non-Christian who's shown a real interest in me. I've kept strong. So, so surely God doesn't mind that I look at pornography occasionally. It means only once a month. I'm a regular here at City Church. I serve on the welcome team. I'm always at Connect. So, so surely God doesn't mind that I keep quiet about my faith when I go into work. I read my Bible every day. I am reformed. I I can tick all the boxes on the church's doctrinal basis and its doctrinal distinctives. So surely, surely it doesn't matter if I'm indifferent about the rough sleepers, sleepers I walk past on my way into church today. Friends, you cannot hide from God's authority no matter how hard you try. Which is why God's authority becomes an authority that you inevitably want to kill. That's our second point today. Uh, Jesus tells the people a parable in chapter 12. Now, a parable is a, a spiritual story that contains a kick. And this story would have resonated with Jesus' first hearers. It's about a man who owned a piece of land, and he planted a vineyard on the land, and then he rented it out to tenant farmers. Now, these tenant farmers, they would have been paid regularly by the owner. But in return, they would have been expected to give the fruit of the vineyard back to the owner. The owner, we read, he goes away. But at harvest time, he sends a servant back to take the fruit from the tenants. The first servant, verse 3, they beat and send away. The the second, verse 4, they strike on the head and they treat shamefully. This probably meant that they stripped him naked. It's humiliating. Then the third, verse five, they kill. And so it goes on. Now, there's something that's actually obscured in our translations. In the original, the word for collecting the fruit of the vineyard in verse two, it is the very same word that is translated seize in verse three. So, The owner wanted to take the harvest. He wanted to take what was rightfully his. But do you see what the tenants do? They take the servant. They are tenants acting as if they are the owner. And that pretty much sums up the human condition, doesn't it? God created the world and everything in it. That's Genesis chapter 1. The the world is a beautiful, abundant, flourishing place. And God has endowed human beings with gifts and skills and aptitudes. We have everything we need to to be fruitful and to flourish, to, to glorify God in the world that he has created. But we act as if we are owners instead of tenants. As if what we do, what we achieve, the things we amass, as if they are all ours rather than God's. 
mean, that's true, isn't it? That's true culturally. We're told that our gender and our sexuality isn't something given to us as birth, but something that we discover that we choose as we look within ourselves. It's true socially. We choose how we relate to others based upon what we feel that we deserve. We speak about the rights that we have from other people instead of speaking about the responsibilities we owe to other people. It's true financially. When our salary comes in at the end of the month, our default response is, that's mine. But that's what I've earned with my own skill, my own experience, my own hard work. The thought that that salary check that comes in at the end of the month is God's, well, that's the furthest thing from our thoughts, isn't it? We've made ourselves owners instead of tenants. But you know, the only way you can ultimately do that is if you get rid of the owner. Which brings us to verses six to eight. The landowner, he sends his son, and look at what the tenants reason among themselves. Verse seven, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him. Same word again. The owner had a right to take his fruit from the vineyard, but the tenants take his son. They kill him, they cast him out of the vineyard, they don't even give him the decency of a burial. Now notice, the tenants do not kill the son because they're confused about his identity. They kill the son because they know exactly who he is and they want rid of him. Can I ask you a very personal question tonight? Have you committed attempted murder? Have you sought to kill God in your life? You know, atheism is a form of God killing. I know it doesn't feel that way. I I used to be an atheist for, for several years before I became a Christian, and I told myself that it was a very logical, very scientific way of looking at the world. But actually, I don't think I was being altogether honest with myself. You see, for a start, from a purely logical, philosophical perspective, atheism is belief in a negative, in believing that God does not exist. And it is notoriously difficult to prove a negative. So logically, it's not the obvious place to go. What's more, atheism goes against a whole raft of evidence. Evidence for intelligent design, sure, but also evidence that there is such a thing as right and wrong. We instinctively believe that to be the case, even though it is completely unsustainable unless there is an ultimate arbiter of truth, some transcendent authority. We also believe that there is such a thing as love, that the way we feel about our spouse or our parents or our children is not simply the chemical reactions that cause us to replicate our DNA, but it's something more. We actually love them. Now, I don't think many of us are atheists purely on evidential grounds alone. It's not that we can't believe in God. 
It's that we don't want to believe in God. And some atheists, they're honest enough to admit that. Like the philosopher Thomas Nagel, who in his book, The Last Word, wrote this. He said, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope There is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I want to make myself an owner, not a tenant. But remember, if you're sitting here and thinking, well, I'm not an atheist, so I'm okay here. Remember that Jesus isn't telling this parable to atheists. At least not people who say they're an atheist. Jesus was telling this parable to people who were very religious. So how do churchgoers murder God? Well, by claiming that we're owners rather than tenants. How do you know if you're doing that today? Well, think about this. What informs your decision about who to date and whether to get married? Is it what the culture tells you? Is it what your heart tells you to do? Or do you bring God and his word, the Bible, into the conversation? When you get a pay rise at work, how do you decide what you're going to do with the extra disposable income? Do you simply spend it on whatever you want? Do you put it into the savings account because that's what you always do? Or do you search the scriptures and pray before deciding what to do with it? And here's the big one. Most of our lives, most of our lives, what we want to do and what the Bible tells us that we should do, they are roughly aligned or at least they're compatible. But what do you do when you're confronted by something you really, really, really want to do but the Bible tells you you must not? The reality is, when Jesus' authority becomes an inconvenient truth, we are very quick to get rid of him in our lives. We are tenants claiming to be owners. And that brings us to our third and final point today. Jesus is an authority that is good. Not every authority is good. The the last month has shown us that, both on a domestic and an international level. But this parable reminds us that God is so very, very different to those earthly authorities. Jesus' first hearers, they were religious leaders, so they knew their Bibles really well. So as Jesus began this parable, it would have sounded very familiar to them. They they realised that he was drawing on Isaiah chapter 5. Same language. In Isaiah, the vineyard represented Israel and the Lord was the owner. And Isaiah chapter 5 describes how God provided for the Israelites having brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And and the details, the details from verse 1 of Mark chapter 12, they're all found back in Isaiah chapter 5. 
So in Isaiah 5, the Lord clears away the stones and and he plants the choicest of vines. He he builds a wall around the vineyard providing protection. He he builds a wine press to process all of the grapes and then he puts a massive watchtower to make sure the vineyard is safe. It's so very personal and intimate and caring there in Isaiah chapter 5. The God of Israel, he is not just a cold and distant authority. No, he is a loving father. He he is a self-sacrificing husband to Israel. He provides absolutely everything that they need. Not a detail is missed. It is a joy to live under this God's loving rule. The pastor, Rico Tice, tells about the time when he visited the cabinet war rooms in London. And when he was there, he saw lots of Winston Churchill memorabilia. And one thing he saw was a note that had been written by Churchill's daughter, Mary. And she'd placed this note on Churchill's coffin as it lay in state in Westminster Hall in 1965. And these are the words that were written on the note. The words of a daughter to her dead father. She said... I wish I could express more adequately my love and gratitude. But please believe me, they are real and deep. And in addition to all the feelings that a daughter has for a loving, generous father, I owe you what every British person does, man, woman, and child. Liberty itself. That's what Churchill's daughter had to say about her father. She delighted in his love and generosity. She acknowledged his deliverance of her and the British people, and she wanted to share that with the world. We should want to do the same for our God. He's a good father. He is a gracious deliverer. He deserves our praises. And yet in Isaiah's day and in Jesus' day, the people failed to do that. Which is why the goodness of Jesus' authority needed to be shown in a second way, in judgment. Look at verse 9. Jesus asks a rhetorical question in verse 9. What should the vineyard owner do? And of course the answer is he should judge the tenants and he should give the vineyard to others. You know, it is not just failure to provide good things that makes an authority bad. It's a failure to act. A failure to do justice makes an authority bad. Justice demanded that the vineyard take action. Justice demands that God takes action in a world of tenants claiming to be owners. He he wouldn't be good if he didn't. But you know, there is a third aspect of his goodness that we see in this passage. Did you notice that? It, It makes the vineyard owner who represents God not just a good authority, but a beautiful authority. Look again at verse six. He decides to send his son. Now, now some commentators, they they question the plausibility of the parable at this point. I mean, this is so unrealistic. He sent servant after servant after servant. They've beaten, they've shamed, they've killed. Why on earth would he send his son? 
I mean, it's just implausible. He wants the fruit from the vineyard. That's what the owner wants. He wants the fruit. So, so what would you do if you were in his position? Tell you what I'd do. I, I'd send in the bailiffs. I'd send in the heavies with, with baseball bats to go and get my fruit. But he sends his beloved son. And notice why. Notice his reasoning. It's there in verse 11. They will respect my son. That's it. You see, the owner doesn't simply want his due. He doesn't simply want his property. He wants relationship with the tenants. That's why he sent his son. And that's why God sent his son his beloved son, into the world. You see, the authority we're called to submit to, the authority we're we're called to orbit our life around, he is not distant and remote. No, he is close and intimate. He is generous and loving. The owner of the whole universe, Jesus, he became a tenant in this world. The one who was life itself came here to die so that we who sought to kill him might live. The one who has forever been the son took the place of God's enemies, being crucified as a traitor against divinity, taking the punishment that we deserve so that we who are enemies and traitors might be made friends. In the words of Psalm 118, the the very psalm that the crowds chanted as Jesus entered Jerusalem, the rock the people have thrown away has become the cornerstone, the very centre of how God today is building his people. So my friends, you and I face a choice today. Whether you're a Christian here or not, we are confronted this afternoon by an authority. An authority you cannot hide from. An authority that ultimately you will not be able to kill no matter how hard you try. He is a stone which you will either build your life upon or trip over. So what are you going to do? He is a good authority. He is the very best. He has given you every good thing you possess. He will always do what is just and right. And he has even given his very life for you 2,000 years ago. Now, isn't that an authority you can trust today in a world where you cannot trust anything else? Isn't that an authority, a good authority, that you can submit your life to? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the owner. You are the owner of the whole universe. There is nothing in this world, ourselves included, which is not yours. Yet you gave up your rights to ownership. Instead of taking the glory that you deserve, you took the weakness and frailty that is ours. 
Instead of living the joy and uninhibited good that is rightfully yours, you took our sorrows. You took our sin. You took our death itself so that we could be made whole. So that we who are by nature tenants who wanted to be owners might be made owners by virtue of being brought into your family. There was no better news than this in the whole wide world. And we delight that you are a good, good 